This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. The quantum internet. Two words uh, that, when combined, spread bafflement and confusion wherever they go. Most people struggle to understand how the internet works without adding an even more befuddling quantum dimension. But advances in material science, as well as the growing threat of ransomware, hacking, and privacy intrusions, are making the reality of that quantum internet not just more likely, but more necessary as well. Are you ready to boldly go where multiple U's are concurrently going? Hey, Richard. Uh, actually, two words that uh, also spread bafflement and confusion are Matt and Armitage. But True. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad we're starting the show off like this today because we've talked about quantum computing kind of on and off over the years. And, mm. you know, I've been, or at least I, I've tried to be, honest about how difficult it is to visualize and understand quantum computing. Uh, it, you know, it's very easy for me just to say that, well, you know, in order to understand quantum computing, it helps if you have a basic understanding of quantum mechanics and the concept of superposition. But, you know, of course, it's my job to try and explain those things. And that's tough because, you know, I don't have a science degree. I stopped studying physics at the age of 16. So I can create a, a picture of the way quantum supercomputing works in my head, but that's not of a huge amount of use on a radio show. So in other words, just imagine that the computer is doing things in dimensions that we can't see. Well, that's the answer that a lot of people sort of default to, and it is a really rubbish answer. You know, it's a terrible answer. At the same time, these misunderstandings then lead reporters and commentators like me to make grand pronouncements about the potential of quantum computing that we're either assuming or we simply read somewhere else. And then we create these kind of self-perpetuating myths that just build on top of each other. So, of course, the reality of quantum computing is extremely complex. So we mentioned a handful of shows back how certain computer processors that can run on a standard office or home type computer system can outperform supercomputers for certain specific tasks. Mm. And this is widening as well the, the potential of open world platforms with GPUs that can render these increasingly complex worlds because they essentially concentrate on the small fragment of the world that that user currently occupies. And how does that bring us back to quantum computing? Well, because of all the hyperbole surrounding quantum computing, the, the kinds of claims that are made about what it will be capable of doing, and like the principles that underpin quantum computing, our inability to grasp how it works will also taint how we view its abilities. And that's why I mentioned those GPUs, because our default assumption is that a supercomputer will run calculations faster than a normal computer, because we approach it from another default assumption, which is that all problems are the same. It's just the amount of power and time that it's going to take to solve them. The reality is that standard or classical computers are likely to outperform quantum computers for many tasks. So, you know, it, it's a bit like 
giving something simple to this really complex being. It's that overthinking the problem. Right. How would we decide um, which problems would benefit from a quantum approach and, and which can be solved using those uh, classical computers? Well, that's another problem. There's no real and clear guide that can tell us that. So, of course, this is all a bit of a, a digression. Today is more about privacy and the quantum internet. But I wanted to bring this up because when we talk about this quantum internet, we will also have to take similar considerations into account. So I would suggest, though, that anyone who's interested in diving a bit more deeply into what we've just been talking about reads an article called What Makes Quantum Computing So Hard to Explain. Uh, it's uh, by a guy called Scott Aronson. It's over at Wired.com. And he makes the point that tech writers and broadcasters should be saying, you know, there's all this really deep quantum stuff under the hood, but just try and understand the bottom line. So I imagine that was a bit of a relief for you. Well, not really, because it's not an excuse just to say this is really complicated and it's too complicated for me to explain it to you, which I will probably do later. Uh, it's <laughs> to say, uh, approach the claims with caution. And I do echo that, you know, maybe I've been guilty of it too. It's easy to get carried away to build a, a picture or a worldview around what you perceive that information to be. But the more misconceptions or misperceptions you build into that picture, the more distorted that picture is likely to become. I know you very well, Matthew, and you're giving yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card for the picture of misconceptions you're about to build, right? Yeah, um, bang on, on the money. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we touched on this story a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is the mesh network that Amazon announced recently. It's called Sidewalk. Mm. The idea is that all your connected Amazon devices will create a low-bandwidth cooperative mesh network with all the other Amazon devices, not just in your home, but in your you know environs that they can speak to. So the idea, as I said, it's that your devices will always be seamlessly connected. Uh, for example, if you have an echo speaker in your garage or carport and your Wi-Fi signal doesn't reach that area, but you can get a signal from your neighbor across the street because they've got a bunch of Amazon devices as well then your speaker stays seamlessly connected through that sidewalk network. So that's all well and good as long as you decide that you do want to make some of your Wi-Fi connection available to anyone who might be riding through the neighborhood and using mm. it as a device. The controversy came because Amazon kind of, you know, announced it in a hurry and decided to switch it on by default. Meaning that you've got to opt out rather than opt in. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, there was a bit of an uproar. Mm. Uh, people with Android devices uh, and increasingly with Apple devices, you know, they're getting more used to having to dive into those submenus, to look into those settings, to toggle things and tweak the devices to get them to function exactly how they want. Android has always been a little bit more geeky in that respect, mm. but we seem to find ourselves increasingly at loggerheads with the way technology companies want us to use their products and, of course, the way that we want to use them. So I was discussing this with a, the founder of a, a design experience company this week, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, in terms of uh, commercial business services, we're often pushed to buy a bundle of products or a suite of services has no real relation to our actual needs. It's simply a more effective or profitable way for the company to sell their services. 
Yeah. Um, but this isn't a quantum internet. No, not in any way. But networks like this, mesh networks like Sidewalk, may be the reason or part of the reason that we need a quantum internet in the future, or at least that we will need a quantum internet within the next decade or so. And a lot of it will depend on where you sit on this overall privacy debate. Of course, Amazon claims that the new network is secure, but because it's built around similar types of technologies that existing Wi-Fi and Bluetooth networks are built around, albeit on Amazon's own proprietary encryption services, some security experts are worried that it will create new points of vulnerability. Mm. For, for most people, though, the biggest rankle seems to be that they're expected to opt in by default, even though this wasn't a vision that they bought into when they purchased a speaker or a home security camera. Does this feed into that geeky settings aspect? Well, yeah, because Amazon's devices tend to be very, very simple, you know, by design. So many of them are voice activated so that they're particularly easy for people who aren't tech savvy to use, mm. which comes back to the importance of that opt-out clause. It doesn't serve users very well if they're the kind of people who struggle with managing their devices. You know, users who have the same kind of existential problems with figuring out what uh, the Wi-Fi is that I do with understanding the quantum internet. And then there's the added complication that some internet providers prohibit or limit the way an internet connection can be shared. So without knowing it, those users may be breaking the terms of their contract with an ISP uh, without even understanding that Sidewalk is on, let alone knowing what it is, or what it does. So it's not a data issue. This isn't going to consume a lot of data. It's more about tech companies imposing their vision on the people who are supposed to be their customers. Would you be concerned about this if it was uh, simply an um, opt-in service? Not really. I mean, in some ways, it's very practical and useful. Uh, Amazon's reputation, as far as security is concerned, is as good as any of the big tech companies. The fact that most of their devices are quite hands-off means that patches and updates are generally automatic, so bugs can be resolved as quickly as they're found. Mm. The idea that uh, if there are any issues with your own home connection, so, for example, something like your ring camera might stay online by riding on that portion of the mesh network supported by a neighbor. That's an additional secure, uh, security layer for you. Not that, of course, many thieves are likely to sever your internet connection before they break into your house, but it does mean that you have a little more flexibility there. The issue of whether we should be looking at mesh networks that are proprietary in this way, that's another issue, of course. Uh, you know, this idea of common standards, open protocols, all of this seems to be eroding in the face of this battle for corporate supremacy between Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Tencent, you know, you name it. Yeah. Well done, Matt. Uh, you've managed to get through the first half, half of the show without actually explaining anything uh, about the quantum internet. Hey, this is important work that we've just done over the last 10 minutes. Uh, I don't want to, to say to people, you know, imagine an internet that's here and somewhere else at the same time. Otherwise, we'll just end up sounding like, I don't know, a chapter of Harry Potter that the uh, publisher threw out. What do you say to that? Nothing. That's probably the best answer. You're listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9.
business, finance and more. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. We've talked about tempering our expectations for quantum machines and systems. We've looked at some emerging privacy concerns. Are we ready to talk about the quantum internet itself? Why do we need a quantum internet? Well, the first reason is quite basic and straightforward, and it's relatively easy to understand without having to understand how any of this works. Now, bearing in mind what I was saying about tempering expectations and that article uh, by Scott Aronson at Wired, uh, quantum computers also bring with them the promise of quantum encryption and the corresponding problem of quantum decryption. Now, mm. as I said, we could be a decade away or even longer from machines that could compromise things like online banking or any other account that's secured by cryptography. Is the concern that we tend to wait for those problems to become a reality? In a sense, you know, we're also seeing this creeping authoritarianism in governments around the world. And as one article I read pointed out, there's nothing to stop internet traffic and communications being intercepted now and stored until such time as quantum computers can be used to decrypt them. Now, of course, you can look at that as scaremongering, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. But as we increasingly see money and financial transactions turning to the blockchain and cryptocurrencies, uh, and the rise of non-fungible tokens and you know similar technologies being used as a proof of origin, we have to work to future-proof those systems, not to mention our own well-being and our own privacy for things that might happen tomorrow. And um, how exactly do you think that quantum encryption would work? Right, this is where we get to the bit where I'm not sure how accurate my descriptions are going to be. Uh -huh. I'm going to try. Uh, when we talk about the quantum internet, there are a number of different models that researchers are developing and tinkering with. So one method would be to use the existing, I guess if we're talking in terms of classical and quantum computing, then this would be the classical internet. Right. One way is to take that classical internet and add a layer of quantum communications on top. In classical computing, of course, the data packets, those pieces of information, are bits. So these are binary, mm -hmm. so they're either a one or a zero. In quantum computing, these are called qubits. And without getting lost in the detail, these qubits, these ones and zeros, can exist in more than one position simultaneously. Uh, so if we're trying to simplify it, the question is essentially about determining which of those positions these quantum data packets are in. Yeah, so that's one of the things that Scott Aronson is warning about when it comes to actually making quantum calculations. In a way, you're generating a lot of answers simultaneously, and you don't actually know which answer it is that you need. Mm. So he likens it to having dozens or scores or hundreds of outcomes and randomly choosing one of them as the correct answer. In the case of this layer of qubits, the sender and the recipient have a key that allows 
you to see that one particular thread within all of that noise. Right. You know, I told you I'm probably not describing this very well, but no, I, I get it. I get it. Okay. So it's, it's a bit like the apocryphal infinite monkeys on typewriters and you and a friend have the Shakespeare key. You know, it's not so much that the signals can't be decrypted. It's just that you can see if someone has tried to decrypt those data flows. Quantum ah. information, yes, it's very fragile. And we're getting into Schrodinger's cat territory here. But the act of observing the information actually alters its state. So if it has been intercepted, both the sender and the recipient can see that it's been observed and they can act accordingly. One possibility, of course, uh, using this same theory is that quantum networks could enable the creation of secure distributed quantum supercomputers. So, you know, the various quantum computers can be linked to form a supercomputer to collectively harness and concentrate the power of each individual machine. And how close are we to having uh, a functioning uh, to ha- having functioning quantum networks? Well, there was a paper published earlier this year by a Dutch research institute called QTech. They've created a basic network of entanglement links consisting of three very small diamonds. Other researchers are experimenting with lasers. Uh, there are examples in, I think, Japan, Canada, and the US as well. But the greater problem comes when you try to extend that network. Traditional internet networks use amplifiers to boost the signals as they travel hundreds or even tens of thousands of kilometers along fiber optic cables. That's not going to be possible with a quantum internet, at least not with the technology we have now. The cable absorbs quite a large percentage of the uh, photons that the quantum traffic consists of. So the longer the cable, the less data is going to reach the source. And currently, those networks have only been pushed in practical terms to uh, a few hundred or maybe a couple of thousand kilometers. And it can't be amplified or boosted? Well, not in the same way. As I mentioned before, the the quantum traffic is very fragile. So that act of amplifying the signal only increases that quantum version of noise. What is possible is to locate nodes along the network that essentially decrypt and rebroadcast the traffic. Uh, According to the new scientists, China has already built a 2,000-kilometer-long quantum network between Beijing and Shanghai, and that uses 32 nodes to maintain that flow of data. Now, um, forgive me, but if we're talking about this from a, a security perspective, don't those nodes present, you know, a security risk? Well, yeah, obviously, every time the information is decrypted and re-encrypted at those nodes, there will be a a risk, a risk Mm. that the node is compromised or hijacked. What would make things easier is if we had a straightforward quantum repeater. And this involves a complicated process called entanglement swapping, which you really don't want me to go into. Uh, (laughs) We we are getting closer to having working, usable repeaters. Uh, Researchers at Stony Brook University in New York have created some of the starting blocks for a repeater, uh, one that's actually showing a lot of uh, promise in real-world applications. Their designs are small, they're portable, they operate at room temperature rather than uh, sub-zero temperatures, and can function using the kind of wavelengths that are typically used in telecoms traffic. But we are talking about them being based around an atomic version of the cloud here, uh, which for people who struggle with, you know, what the regular cloud actually is rather than 
what it does, uh, then that may be something we want to pretend doesn't quite exist. I'm all for pretending. Uh, based on those limitations, I'm guessing that it would be almost impossible to send this kind of information along um, undersea cables. Yeah, uh, even with those quantum repeaters, uh, because the limit of each repeater would be limited compared to what you can achieve with uh, classical internet data traffic. If it exists in, in more than one state and location at once, and yes, I realize that's the a bit of an oversimplification, couldn't we just teleport it? Well, weird as it sounds, that is actually an option. So scientists at the Institute of Photonic Sciences in uh, Castel de Fel, Spain, are trying to create this kind of network. Again, just a, a very basic description of the science behind this. You're not sending the actual physical information, which is one of the reasons that this is you know, such a slippery and difficult topic to try and understand. Mm. What you're doing is measuring entangled photons. And I'll leave the physics at that point. But essentially what you're doing is reading the information at the source by measuring those entangled photons at both uh, the the sender and the recipient's ends of the chain. Uh, and I'm sure a physicist is going to tweet us and tell me I'm completely wrong with this. But, mm. but my understanding is that by reading those entangled pairs of photons, you're essentially instructing the photons at the receiving end to replicate the information from the sender. So not like Star Trek. Well, you're not physically taking the original information apart and reassembling it at the other end. You're kind of telling those photons to create a photocopy of it at the other end. Mm. And to do that, you need a, a quantum memory, which is what the team in Spain has been working to create. So we were talking about uh, creating networks using diamonds earlier. So this team has created crystals from a substance called yttrium orthosilicate to create this memory. They've managed to link two labs around 50 meters apart using fiber optic cables, and they've been able to store pairs of entangled photons into separate memories, one in each lab, for 25 microseconds. Again, they've designed the network so that they're not just theoretical. They should work in uh, practical applications outside the lab. The next step, obviously, is to increase that range beyond 50 meters because that's not very useful. And hey, presto, we have another option for a quantum repeater. Now, like any good science show, uh, you mentioned lasers. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered if you picked up on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I thought I might have managed to uh, deflect you with the teleportation, but yeah, obviously not. Um, yeah, earlier this year, researchers at the uh, Nanjing University used lasers to send entangled photons between two drones hovering in the sky about a kilometre apart. Uh, now, the team hopes that by increasing the altitude of the drones, they can in achieve distances of around 300 kilometers. Obviously, it's not just making them go higher. They'll have to do a lot of other stuff too. But mm. the reason for going higher is because it re reduces the effects of pollution and weather, of course, on the efficiency of the laser. So you could then potentially create a, a much cheaper quantum network. Now, Cheaper is, of course, a relative term. I mean, we're talking about drones hovering thousands of meters in the sky 24 hours a day. Mm. Uh, but it would certainly be cheaper than a network based on satellite uplinks. So satellite uplinks would form a component of this network, but using the drones would give you more flexibility to broadcast locally. Do we know how scalable that would be? 
That's a really big question with any of these quantum solutions, I think. So one of the suggestions uh, of this drone-based system is that they may be used more in uh, an encryption-type setting. So they might have more of a, a military or political application. The drone could even be used to accompany specific individuals to protect their communications traffic. The likelihood is that we're going to need a lot more satellites, not the big ones that we typically mm. think about, but a lot more small satellites. Uh, and we've talked about that before in terms of uh, creating uh, satellite-based Wi-Fi networks as well. Uh, you know, this all of this, this is just simply the infrastructure. You know, we haven't even talked about the layers of software, that quantum internet stack that would allow developers to write applications that sit on and use this quantum internet. Um, okay, then. Um, we, we've got to wrap up, so I've got one final question. Uh, what do you think we'd be able to do with the quantum internet that we can't do with the one that we've already got? Well, the simple answer is that nobody really knows. Um, you know, there are those aspects like encryption and security. Those are obvious, but it's a bit like going back to ARPANET in 1969 and immediately predicting TikTok. Huh. We have no way of doing that. So without getting into more hyperbole and making massive claims, it will enable us to do things that we haven't even thought about being able to do yet. Some of those things will be practical and helpful. Others are just going to be fun. You know, what would quantum gaming look like? Uh, would there be quantum entertainment shows that we could all star or participate in in real time? Could we potentially create avatars of ourselves to walk around and experience remote places? I, I know I could do with an avatar right now. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. The, the one thing I do know is that I really want to find out. Thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> My pleasure, as always. Now, of course, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. If you missed any part of this show, go and download the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. For BFM 89.9, I'm Rich Bradbury. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.